0: It is a great privilege to be able to share with you all that God has done in the life of our students, and it really just speaks to the generational work that Berean does so well, whether you're you're a baby in the nursery or until you reach upper ages, I guess. Wisdom age, we'll call it. Um, It is just a testimony of God's faithfulness. And one of the things that you cannot help but just ask in a natural sort of way when you want to do all to the glory of God is just ask yourself the question, what will God say at the end of a fall retreat or a winter retreat or a missions trip, action day camp, all those type of things? At the end of it, you would hope that you were seeking to do the will of God and you're seeking to bring him honor and glory, and ultimately you want to hear Good job, my faithful servant. And that is where we find ourselves this morning in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. We're going to take some time. We're going to dive through this parable that Jesus is telling. But I think to really drive home the point of what we're trying to see, and maybe just kind of a practical application of this idea, is that let's think back to a moment in time. For some of us, it's right now. Some of us, it might have been a little bit ago, but that was that first moment as a teenager where your mom or your dad came up to you and they entrusted you with the family car. And they said, here's the keys to the car. We trust you to go and take it out without us being in the vehicle with you. Everybody recall that time? I know for some of you, it might have been a little bit ago, but it's all right. But there came a time, right? Or maybe it was a trip that your parents said, hey, you can go on this trip. You can go visit this friend's house. Just be smart. Just be wise. Just use good wisdom in that. And you had a choice, right? You had a moment where they were entrusting you to do something. And you had a moment to decide either I'm going to honor their trust do what is honoring to them. I'm going to obey the speed limit. I'm going to make sure there's no scratches on the car. I'm going to, some of your cases might have been, I'm not going to eat in the car because dad would be really mad. Or maybe even, I'm going to fill the car up before I bring it back. You probably would have blown your parents' minds, right? But regardless, we were entrusted... And it would look very poorly if you came back to the car being a different color, the gas tank almost on empty, right? That wouldn't have been honoring them. And so you were stuck with asking the question, what will my parents say when I return in this period of trust? What will they expect of me? And for some, it encouraged them to give you greater responsibility, greater freedom because you did such a good job. And maybe for some of us, it took a while after that moment, right? Dad wasn't so sure after the car came back, muddy, empty, all those type of things, right? But in those same ways, Jesus is going to walk us through a similar situation in which he's going to tell a parable, and a parable, if you have been around long enough, you know it's a story that is often used by Jesus to teach a deeper meaning than just the story itself. It would cause the listener to think deeper behind the meaning of the story. And this morning, Jesus in Matthew chapter, chapter 25 is going to talk about the parable of three servants in which they were entrusted by their master with a certain resource to be used in a certain way and at the end of it to report back to what they have done. And I'm going to do my best here this morning to help us see the three events of the story play out for us and not jump too far ahead in the story. I'm going to try my best also because there's a lot of numbers to just reference them as servant one, two, and three, even though there's five talents, two talents, and one talent. So bear with me, and I'm sorry if I mix up numbers along the way, but here we go. Matthew chapter 25 verses 14 through 18, we're going to see Jesus is going to talk about the entrustment period that the servants were given. He says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who has called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away, and he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five more talents. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, as we are walking through this parable, we also have to understand that this is towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry here on earth, and we also will see that Jesus was just talking about the kingdom of heaven earlier in verse 1 of chapter 25. And so Jesus is continuing on this teaching. So in verse 14, when we read, for it, we have to ask the question, well, what is it? And that is that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. And often there's two different Realms, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven throughout Jesus' teaching, and that is often that of the visible kingdom and the invisible kingdom. And often, when we read kingdom of heaven, it is natural for our minds to go to heaven itself, the invisible realm. It's natural for us to think about the eternal place, the place that we cannot see. But there are times where Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven and is talking about the visible kingdom. The earthly presence of Jesus' ministry, of Jesus' presence, and that's often through the church. And so it's that presence that is physically known, that presence of we are ambassadors for the king of the kingdom that is to come. And so Jesus here in verse 14 is talking about the earthly kingdom, and he's talking about the visible church at large. So as Jesus walks through this parable, he says that there is a master who calls his slaves. So these slaves were known, and they knew the master. And this was a purposeful, equipping opportunity for the slaves to present to their master a demonstration that this entrustment period that was given to them was well invested, and that they could demonstrate their love for their master. And we see the first two slaves— do a really good job. Slave number one with the five talents went out and worked diligently and increased by twofold his talents. Slave number two took his two, doubled them up, and had four at the end of this period. And so when we look at those two servants, they are hardworking, diligent, working to please their master. They don't know how long the master's going to be gone, but they want to make sure that at the end of this entrustment period— The master will be pleased. But servant number three, for whatever reason, we don't quite know why, hides his talent. And we have to ask the question, too, well, what is a talent? And it isn't the physical representation of your abilities, but rather this was a form of money, a form of value of some sort, and the amount of money here is not important, even though at that time a talent was considered by weight and material value of the item. But Jesus isn't concerned about that, because if he was, he would tell us how much was being dealt here. But rather, Jesus is focusing on the entrustment period and what they did during that time, how diligent they were in working for their master. Servant number three, you have to wonder what is what is happening here? Why is he doing this? And Jesus being the masterful storyteller that he is, is trying to carry around a deep meaning for us, a deeper teaching, and probably even an equipping for his current disciples who are hearing the story. So Jesus moves us from the entrustment period to the second event that we're going to see here in the book of Matthew. And that is Jesus is going to move us from the entrustment period to our response to that entrustment period. And we're going to jump around a few verses here because I don't want us to miss what has transpired between the three servants. So the second event, our response to the entrusted period, we see in verses 19 and 20— now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. And jumping on to verse 22, he says, And he who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. So verses 19 and 20, and verse 22, we see the first two servants come to their master with joy, with diligent work, with an ability to say to their master, we have awaited your return and have worked diligently and heartily for you, and not only giving back what they were given, but double of what was entrusted. Again, the amount is unimportant here. What matters is the diligent humble obedience to the work that was set before them. And we know this because as we will look ahead to the other verses where the master responds to the servants, that this was a joy that was to them, and the master is not concerned about the amount, but rather where the hearts of his servants lie. Or another way that we can say this is that increased obedience begets increased blessing. Increased obedience begets increased blessings. But we know there's another servant, right? Servant number three with the one talent. What does he do when the master returns? Verse 24 and 25 says this. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was... Afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. So, the first two servants respond well. They respond with joy. They respond with an ability to demonstrate their faithfulness to their master. Servant number three, from what we see and what he says, he's terrified of his master. He's scared of him. He views him as a hard taskmaster, a, a cruel man. And it was not uncommon for that day to hide your wealth, your valuables, in the ground. So it's not unheard of of what this slave did, but it is unheard of of what he responds to his master. And you have to wonder, what will the master respond to the third servant, let alone servant one and two? But the slave is fearful, He's maybe embittered towards his master, and we see that kind of played out in the way he responds. But by all accounts, this was a wasted opportunity by servant number three to demonstrate, to prove to his master where his love and affections lie. Because by demonstration of those, he shows where his true heart lies with his master. So then we move on to our third event here this morning. We see the master's response. How is the master going to respond to the three servants? Now by natural deduction, we would say, well, obviously he's going to love servant one because he increased double from five to ten. So clearly he's got to be the favorite, right? And servant number two, I mean, he did good, but it's only four talents. And then there's servant number three. But let's see the master's response to each one Verse 21 says this. His master said to him, servant number one, with five talents, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Right? This makes sense. It makes sense that he would be overjoyed from five to ten talents by servant number one. Servant number two, we see in verse 23, and this is how he responds. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Again, the master is not concerned about the amount of money, but he's very concerned about the diligent work of his servants. And they have proved faithful over what he calls little, and they will increase, because of their obedience, blessings in their life. And we see the important principle that Jesus is trying to get across to us and that we, if we are faithful here on earth, there will be increased blessings, not always earthly, monetary blessings, but blessings of diligent, good job, my servant, but in nothing else here on earth, it will enter into heaven with us. There's joy here on earth in service to the Lord, but there's also joy into eternity that we see. But then... We see servant number three, verse 26 through 30. Servant one and two, good job, I am proud of you, you've done well, enter into my joy. What will he say to servant number three? But his master answered him, he said, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who will have more be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth seems pretty harsh. But I think there's an important thing that Jesus is trying to get across to not only his disciples who are hearing this parable, but also the timing of which this is occurring. And so if we were to take time this morning and go ahead, just a few verses, a few passages of Scripture, we'd see that Jesus' earthly ministry is coming to a close. And in fact, one of the servants in Jesus' ministry would ultimately demonstrate his heart similar to servant number three, and that would be Judas, who was called by his master, but yet proved in his heart where his allegiance truly lied. And so I think Jesus, in his masterful storytelling, in his omniscience of being God, knowing what is coming down the line, was preparing his disciples for the truth of what the earthly kingdom often experiences, and that there are often people within a congregation who will look and act like a true disciple, but if their hearts are unregenerate, if they have never experienced salvation, that even the talents that God has given them ultimately lie fruitless if they have not been changed by Jesus. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that one of the twelve will prove faithless in the end. But what's important for us also to see is that what Jesus is not saying. And Jesus is not saying that we can lose our salvation. That is very clear by his own teaching, as we see in John chapter 10, where he talks about once we are in the Father's hand, we are secured forever. Nobody can take them out of the Father's hand. Not ourselves, not events. If we have been saved by grace, we are eternally secured And later on in that same passage, he talks about how the sheep know his voice and he knows them. So we see three important notes from the parable then about this servant. Number one is that the master doesn't dispute or defend the claims made by servant number three, but rather he speaks into them. Number two, he demonstrates perhaps a low effort option that could have been occurred by the servant. Servant was afraid he was going to lose money, afraid he was going to incur his master's wrath. And so he said, You could have at least gone to the bank and invested and had interest, but you didn't even do that. So, number three, ultimately, the master knows the heart of the slave, and he says that it is wicked. And it's an important and stark warning to us as we sit here this morning is that we have to ask ourselves where are our allegiance to the master, to Jesus? Is it truly one that's been changed and transformed? Is it one that has been gifted by many opportunities? Because God expects of us to use them for his honor and his glory. And what's interesting is as we read verse 30, there's quite a bit of debate about what verse 30 really is saying. Some commentators would like to point out that verse 30, because we're talking about the earthly visible kingdom of heaven, That obviously if we can't lose our salvation, then whatever place this servant was in was not that he is lost into eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth or a place of hell, but rather it's a loss of blessings of service. But I think when you look at that and you look up at verse 26 and see how the master responds to his servant, and other commentators hold to this as well. That we have to interpret verse 30 as not a loss of salvation or loss of blessing, but rather a place where the servant never truly was in the first place. In verse 26, he says that he is a wicked and slothful servant. Verse 30, he says that he is a worthless servant. And when you take in the weeping and gnashing of teeth phrase, that is often a reference reserved for hell-specific. So it is an obvious interpretation then that this servant was never truly part of the master's household. Which is a good warning for us. And I think we see a classic example of this in the life of Judas, who betrayed Jesus. And even though he was counted with the twelve, ultimately was not with them in the end. So what does that mean for us as a whole, as a church? There are people who have been given gifts— given talents that are being used by God, and they can use them and appear by all rights a believer. But where our hearts truly rest, what we are striving after demonstrates whether or not we've been changed by Jesus Christ. And so we have to be careful as we sit here today and think, wow, this is a harsh reality. We can't miss the point what Jesus is trying to get across, and that we are saved to do, not to do Wait, sorry, let me rephrase that. We are not saved by good works, as we see in Ephesians 2.8, but rather we are to do good works, as we see in Ephesians 2.10. And in the doing of those, or not doing, we demonstrate where our heart aligns. And Jesus expects, like the master, that his slaves work diligently till his return. And so as we see in the parable, we see that there is an entrustment period that's been given to us. And often that period for us here now is the life that we live. We have been given gifts, talents, possessions to be used by God. And we are entrusted with those to increase his glory, his name, his fame. And how we respond to those entrustment periods can either be an increase in blessing or it can be an ultimate condemnation of where we are with him. And number three is that we are hoping to hear the master's response, similar to slave number one and two, good job, my faithful servant. That's the heart and prayer of our church. That's the heart and prayer of my ministry with our students is that we hear that God is pleased and glorified in our lives. So how do we drive this all home then? The challenge is then, as we move into this week, it's God is asking of us to take into account all that he's given us. Everything that we've been given by God, he expects use of him. And everything that we have, in some way, some capacity, has been given, gifted to us. Whether it be our talents, whether it be our gifts— or our possessions. But God expects us to use them to increase the glory of God, increase the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And hopefully that is some of what you heard here this morning through the testimonies of our students and the ministry that God has blessed us with here at Berean. And it is something that we have a privilege to do to serve the Master. And in fact, one of the practical outplays of that is what we get to do here in just a few moments with Outreach Sunday. So my encouragement to you is find ways to plug in. Find ways to use those talents, those gifts, those possessions to increase the glory of God in your life this week. Let me pray, and then we'll be dismissed for this morning. Father God, I want to thank you so much for the gifts, the talents, the possessions that you have represented here in the body of Berean. And Lord, I pray that you just help us to increase your glory For the world to see. And God, I also pray for us as we sit here this morning. There may be some of us who sit here and go, I'm similar to servant number three. And that I am fearful. And I am intimidated by the idea of a God who expects so much of me. And Lord, I just pray that if that may be the case here this morning. That that person would turn their heart to you. To see that you are a master who expects great things. But you're also a tender, loving, caring God who works in and through us. And so, Father, I pray that they would surrender their lives to you to walk in obedience to you and experience salvation for the first time today. And God, I pray for the rest of us here this morning who know you, that you would use us to bring you honor and glory, and that one day we may also hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. will enter into my joy, and we may see your face. Father, I pray this of our church. I pray this of our community. I pray this of your kingdom going forward. We pray these things in the strong and precious name of Jesus. Amen.